We, we are currently in an Advent series, an Advent series that we are calling Treasuring Christ in Isaiah. Um, you may or may not be familiar with Advent. It's a term that's kind of a, an internal term in the church. It uh, comes, from, comes from Latin and it refers to, to the coming uh, of Christ. And so Advent uh, is all about the coming of Christ. And throughout the season of Advent, we reflect on Jesus' coming. And, and now, because Christ has come once, uh, we reflect on Christ's first coming, remembering what he did when he came, born as a baby from a virgin mother, and grew up to live a perfect life and to go to the cross on our behalf and to rise victoriously from the dead. But we also live in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, while we anticipate and await his return. And so built into Advent is this, this opportunity to, to pause and to reflect, to remember Christ. But the goal of Advent isn't, isn't merely to reflect. In fact, we, we sing about what the goal of Advent is. The goal of Advent is to adore Christ. This is actually what we remind ourselves and invite others to do every Christmas. Oh, come. Oh, come, let us Adore him. Behold him, born king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. What does it mean to adore, though? What does it mean uh, to adore Christ the Lord? It means to dwell on him, but to dwell on him in a particular way. To adore is to to dwell on Christ with delight. Uh, We all know what this looks like on some measure. If you think about it from an earthly perspective, You, you have somebody perhaps in your life. When you think about them, if you give yourself enough space, when you dwell on that person, on who they are and what they've done for you, it it wells up the sense of delight. I know it's always imperfect when we think about another person. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a dear friend. But to adore means to to dwell on with delight. It means to to treasure in your heart. It means to, to look upon with great longing and desire. That's what Advent's about. But the the object of our adoring in Advent isn't another person. It isn't merely an event. But the object of our adoration is the person and the work of Jesus. I love Luke chapter 2 verse 10. We we heard it read this morning. Did you catch what the angels said when they appeared to the shepherds? Who, by the way, were nobodies. Nobody of great significance. God appeared first to them. And he said, behold, fear not. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. That's the summation of the faith. That's the summation of Christianity. Good news of great joy for all people. But just like all things, to understand good news requires that we we understand the backdrop upon which we hear that good news. Good news is truly good when we understand first the bad news. You know, I think what's interesting about Christmas is that uh, Christmas brings about a sentimentality that is unlike any other season, right? I mean, if, if you walk around downtown Ann Arbor, uh, the, 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 the glass uh, front storefronts are, are covered with decoration. Uh, literally, Christian Christmas carols blare in stores uh, as we, we sing about joy to the world. There'll be, there'll be orchestras and uh, different musical events where, where we'll reflect on the work of Christ through Handel's Messiah and and other songs as we reflect on Jesus. Our whole uh, environment is transformed. 
to think about Jesus, whether we almost mean it or not. Uh, in, in so many ways, no doubt, Christmas has become a, uh, a secularized holiday. Not everyone celebrates Christmas from a Christian perspective, but we can't escape that Christmas is rooted in Christianity and the birth of Christ. It's warm and inviting. People come together. Families gather. We show kindness towards one another. But, but here's what happens at Christmas. Uh, and perhaps it doesn't happen during a, uh, an election year, but I think uh, it, it can happen that the thought comes in our mind that maybe now we can all come together and we can all get along. Even if it's just for a month, maybe we can all get along and create a better world. In fact, there's a, a little book that uh, I've enjoyed reading. It's by a, an author and pastor named Tim Keller. It's called Hidden Christmas. And in it, he covers a number of different passages about Christ's birth. But uh, in one of the chapters, he tells the story uh, of seeing an ad in the New York Times uh, that said that the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. And so when he read this headline, he points out that there's this thought that we have the ability, we have the, the light within us and the, the power within our reach to get rid of darkness and injustice and evil and to create a better world together. And, and no doubt I believe that people who disagree on all kinds of things can come together to work together for a common good. But Advent tells us some bad news. And that bad news is that that kind of work is outside of our reach. We are not capable within ourselves to create this better world. In fact, the bad news of the Bible is that we are so sinful that God himself had to come on our behalf to rescue us. And yet that's the good news, that though we were so sinful, God himself was willing to come on our behalf to rescue. And this is why Advent is good news of great joy. Though we are sinful, God comes. He comes to rescue us. So Advent is all about the coming of God, coming to us. And, and outside the Gospels, perhaps the best place we can look to see about God's coming is Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is found in the Old Testament, but many people consider it the fifth gospel because it's so rich with references and allusions to this coming Messiah, this coming Savior, who we will see will be Christ. Isaiah is written some 700 to 800 years before the birth of Christ, before the person and work of Christ. And yet, Jesus seems to jump off the pages and the chapters to us. And so our goal during Advent is to, to look at some select chapters in Isaiah to help us think about Christ, to reflect on him so that we might treasure Christ all the more. We can't go through this in great detail, but in Isaiah, Isaiah is a book that's fascinating to read, that's rich with so much uh, allusion and reflection to Christ. And yet uh, we were talking about this uh, in our small group this last Wednesday. When you read through Isaiah, uh, on one hand, you're like, oh, that's awesome. And then on the other hand, you're like, wait, what's he talking about? Who's he talking to? Um, <clears throat> and so and when we think about Isaiah, Isaiah, big picture. Uh, this is for free for you, for you to understand Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is about God's judgment as well as his gracious deliverance of his people and all nations. And in many ways, Isaiah comes as a prophet, this mouthpiece of God calling Israel, the people of God, to repent of going their own way. And to return and trust in the Lord. To walk in the light of the Lord. And so Isaiah has these visions of judgment and, and deliverance. Of restoration. And it's kind of like if you were standing at the, uh, 
uh, at the foot of a, or maybe on an outlook, you know, lookout place, and you're looking at a range of mountains. And as you look at those range of mountains, the mountains near and the mountains far kind of blend together. You know that lap, the, the desktop on Microsoft, the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, that's all hazy and blue? Um, maybe some Apple people in here, you wouldn't understand that reference, but... Um, but there's this range of mountains. It's hard to see where the, the front mountain is and the back mountain. You don't see the valley between the mountains. Uh, in, in some ways, when the, you look at these prophecies of Christ, they're like that. What looks like it's going to happen soon is actually going to happen later. And we don't see the, the valley in between the mountains. The, the prophecies of the coming of Christ we'll see in the New Testament are broken up into two. Christ's first coming and his second coming. Today we'll look at Isaiah 35 and it'll be about what God will do ultimately in his second coming. A new heavens and a new earth. The, the future reality of heaven that awaits all those who trust in Christ. But we get a glimpse in Christ's first coming of the work that he intends to do. Uh, so let's, let's look um, at Isaiah 35. You, you might see on the screen behind me how Isaiah is broken down in the chapters. Uh, we make this available online. Uh, that's helpful for you if you want to go back and look at this. But it kind of shows you the flow uh, that we see in Isaiah. Let's, let's read Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with great joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of our God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They, then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. And the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way of the Lord. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Three things I want you to see in Isaiah 35 in, in summary fashion. The first is this promise that God will make all things new. Did you, did you get what it was saying in Isaiah uh, 35, uh, the beginning descriptions? Look, look at the descriptions of what will take place. The wilderness, which is a, a place of, of testing and trial for Israel as they were brought out of of bondage to Egypt, it will become a place of joy. The, the desert, which is dry and barren, will, will sprout up with beautiful flowers. I don't know what a crocus is, but I think it's beautiful uh, based upon what I understand. Uh, and, and there's this picture of abundance that will take place. The, the references to Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon are, are, are references to, to God's work and, and His majesty and His beauty that's defined by these places. We see that when you're there, as beautiful as the restoration of the creation is, the most beautiful thing that awaits us in eternity is seeing God. 
they will behold the glory of God. This is the hope that sustains Christians throughout the ages, that one day our faith will be sight. We will behold the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. We see after this command to strengthen the weak hands and say to those who have an anxious heart, with God's coming means that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute sing for joy. What is dead comes to life. Springs burst forth from the desert. And there in this place, it's for a special people. A people who are called redeemed. It's a place defined by holiness, not by unrighteousness and disobedience to God. In the future, eternity awaits an enjoyment of the presence of God. This is the future that God points to. He's describing heaven. We have a little book over here called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, If you are an adult uh, and you want the Jesus Storybook Bible, they have a version called God's Love for Us. Um, Same same, uh, poetic references that summarize the story of Scripture. Uh, But listen to the way it describes the future uh, that awaits those who know Christ. It says, and the king says, this is summarizing Revelation. Look, God and his children are together again. No more running away. That's what we did in the beginning. Or hiding No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No no more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they are gone forever. Here's what awaits us. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. I don't know how much life you've lived, but perhaps it's marked by sadness. The death of people you love. The death of dreams you had hoped for. The disappointment in relationships the disappointment in your career or your hopes and aspirations, all of these deaths and all of these tears, God says one day everything sad will come untrue and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. And notice who gets to experience it. It's those who are redeemed of the Lord, it says towards the end in in verse 10 in particular, that there's this highway. The way to get there isn't on our own climbing over the fence into, into this glorious place, but there's a highway, a highway of holiness that only those who are redeemed walk upon. Now, what's that mean? You, you heard a testimony this morning that it wasn't about doing enough and performance that gets us into God's presence, but it's about receiving what he's done. And I love the description that Isaiah points to here. He says that this future that awaits us, we know that it's of grace because not even the fool can mess it up. Did you catch that? He says, Not, no unclean shall pass over. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. You see, we know this isn't our own doing. This is what God's saying. You didn't figure it out, but I put you on the way. My grace drew you to the path. I love what the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, what a blessing that this promise is to poor fools. We should err anywhere. To err is human. And it seems that we have a double portion of it. The more we look at our lives, the more we see folly in our hearts. I hope if you're honest with yourself, you could assess the same thing. The more we look at our lives, the more folly we see in our hearts. What mercy is it that when we walk in the way of faith, in the way of Christ, fools as we are, we shall not err. We shall not go wrong. Christ will not disappoint. It's the redeemed who experience this future restoration and renewal of all things. But then catch the hope of Advent. 
in verses 3 through 4. Look what it says. It says, strengthen your weak hands and make firm your feeble knees. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come. He will bring judgment. All those who disobey and, and reject Christ, reject God's promise, we see in Isaiah 34 that God will not be mocked. Judgment will come. But all those who will turn, who will receive his coming with glad hearts, he will come to us and save us. This is where that first and second coming plays in. What, what Israel expected God to do at the end of time, God did at the middle of time through the coming of Christ. It was there on the cross that God brought judgment against sin. In a surprising way, not judgment against us, but judgment upon His own Son, bearing the sin that we deserve, that the punishment that we deserve because of sin. And He defeated sin by going to the cross and rising from the dead. When He rose from the dead, it's a testimony, a vindication that His perfect life and His sacrificial death is all that is needed for our salvation. He came. He came and through Him we have this future hope. And through Him we have a present encouragement. You notice what it says? Those who are weak, those who are feeble, those who are anxious, think about Christ's coming. That's our hope as Christians. The coming of Christ. He's come and because He's come we have hope. We can't read it but Matthew 11, 1-6, John the Baptist if you remember, John the Baptist was born before Christ six months prior, and his assignment was to be a, a messenger preparing the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. After Jesus came and began to do his ministry, John sent some messengers to Jesus, and he said, Are you the one who's to come? The one that we've been waiting for? And I love this, because I don't know where you're at. Maybe you have doubts about Jesus. Maybe you're a believer, and you're wrestling with some questions. Here's a man that Jesus said is greater than any other man who walked this earth. And he's questioning. He, he previously said, behold, this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And now, just maybe months later, he's saying, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one to come? And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what Isaiah 35 says. Tell him. What you hear and see, that the blind receive their sight, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, that the poor have good news preached to him. And blessed is the one who's not offended by this. Jesus points to Isaiah 35 and he says, my coming is fulfilling what this says. And we have it in part now. When Christ came, he, he did these amazing things. And now we live in the in-between. Awaiting for him to come and take away our fears, to take away our pain and our anxious hearts, to make us new, to make all things new. This is what we eagerly await because Christ came. And the last thing that we'll end with is not only that God will make all things new and that he will come for us, but he will be our everlasting joy. Throughout Isaiah 35, joy is woven in. In verse 2, we see that <clears throat> the desert shall rejoice and, and blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing. God's creation burst with the joy of his redemption. In verse 6, it says that the, the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the right response to God's salvation. Do you want to know how to respond to what God has done for us? 
respond with joy expressed in praise. And then verse 10 says that when they get to Zion, when they return home, then everlasting joy shall be upon their heads as a crown that, that defines them, that, that speaks to who they belong to. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That phrase, shall obtain gladness and joy, could be taken as they overtake gladness and joy. It's as if what they've been seeking all along, they finally receive, right? This is, this is when we say our faith is but in part, but we will see fully and behold fully. This is it. Our whole lives, this is what one author says, our whole lives we just wanted to be happy. But all our lives, something has always spoiled it. What spoiled your happiness? Maybe you've gotten in the way. Maybe it's somebody else. Ultimately, it's our own need for God. God is saying, trust me enough to follow me, and I will bring you home with singing. I will overwhelm you with a joy unbroken and unbreakable, and your sorrow and your sighing will flee. Good news of great joy, everlasting joy, that we will be in the presence of God and enjoy him forever. How will you respond? How you respond to this coming of Christ? In Luke chapter 2, it says that the shepherds go and see Jesus coming. In verses 18 through 20, Luke records that all who heard wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things up in her heart, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard and had been told to them. This is how we should respond to treasure, to praise, to respond in faith and to believe upon Christ. We're going to pray here in a moment and we're going to transition to a time of, of, of signing our covenant, of covenanting together officially. Some of you will be witnesses to this today. I know that'll be a little different, um, but I hope it's an encouragement to you. Some of you will be participants, seeing what we've been working towards and, and rejoicing in what God has accomplished but I want to pray now and ask that God would help us this Advent where we're weak and feeble and anxious to, to dwell on the good news that Christ has come. And in his coming and his dying and his rising, we can have joy. And joy that's in part now will become full one day to come. And that should cause all of us to ask ourselves, where are we headed? To judgment or to joy? To reject Christ is to receive judgment. To receive him as joy. And may this strengthen and build us up as his people. Let me pray and then we'll move towards our covenant.